Hey guys, thanks for listening to our math theology. I'm sorry it's taken so long. Thank you for listening to the first episode on the historical Jesus and the infancy narratives. Today we're going to finish off the quest for the historical Jesus by looking at the new quest and the third quest. We'll be concentrating on the major scholars of each quest and also the different methodologies and traits of the new quest and old quest. The new quest started in 1953 and went to about the mid-1980s. The two main scholars that we're going to look at are Ernst Keisman and Gunther Bernkamp. And the two main traits that are important to the new quest are the ipsuma verba and the criteria of authenticity. So looking at Ernst Keismann, he was born in 1906 and died in 1998. He was a German Lutheran theologian and professor of New Testament. He taught at universities in Mainz, Göttingen and Tübingen, and he studied under Rudolf Bultmann. This is interesting because in 1953 he would deliver a lecture to a group of Bultmann's former students entitled The Problem of the Historical Jesus. Now in this, he goes against what Boltman proposed in how we separate the charismatic Christ from the historical Jesus. And instead, he says we need to bring them closer together. This lecture is widely regarded as the impetus for the start of the new quest. Kaisman argued that making too clear a distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith was problematic. If you take away Jesus' historicity, then you can make the Christ of faith anything you want, which is what we see in the liberal lives when these authors are creating Jesus in their own image and what you see during the war periods uh, or the period of no quest when Jesus becomes an Aryan Nazi propaganda tool. Kaisman also has a theological problem with this. He says that separating the historical and spiritual Jesus comes close to a heresy known as docetism. Now docetism says that Jesus was not fully human. Now the council of Chalcedon says that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully God. And so his historicity for Kaisman is imperative in the fact that he is fully human. Because if he didn't exist, or if it doesn't matter if he existed or not, then you're going away from the belief that he is both fully human and fully God. Kaisman also points to the fact that the Gospel demonstrates that earliest Christians regarded the life story of Jesus as important for the faith. Kaisman didn't believe you could form a historical life of Jesus out of the Gospels. He didn't think you could go from A to B and say this is exactly what happened in Jesus' life. However, he did think it was methodologically possible to establish a few undeniable facts about him. This lecture started the new quest, and it was a major call to action for a lot of theologians and New Testament scholars. It contrasted itself with the old quest, as the old quest tried to move away from theology, tried to move away from the ideas of the church, whereas the new quest tries to bring the theological understanding of Jesus closer to the historical understanding of Jesus. However, the new quest still worked within the parameters of form criticism, like the period of no quest had. However, scholars of the new quest began to focus on Jesus' sayings rather than the events of his life. And the person we're going to be looking at who epitomizes this is Gunter Bernkamp. So Gunter Bernkamp published his classic Jesus and Nazareth within four years of Kaisman's lecture. And this is probably the most standout book in the entire corpus of the New Quest. So I highly recommend if you want to know more about the way that the New Quest worked and the methodology it used, you need to look at Gunter Bernkamp's Jesus and Nazareth. Bernkamp tries to distance himself from the works of the liberal lives and states at the start of his book that no one is any longer in the position to write a life of Jesus. However, Bernkamp does want to collect some data from the gospel accounts 
that almost indisputable. So if we look at it, he says we can say Jesus was a Jew from Nazareth, he spoke Aramaic, and he was baptized by John. Due to the work of the foreign critics and the exhaustive scholarship that went on to Jesus' life, trying to understand what came first, how would you lay out the events of his life, there's no real progress to be made there. Brunkham then decided to concentrate on Jesus' sayings. By going back to his sayings, by going back to the very words, then you are likely to be able to create a historically authentic Jesus by understanding what he actually believed, what he actually taught, and what his goals were. From analyzing the different sayings in the Gospels, Burnham was able to conclude that Jesus was a man of great authority, who had preached the kingdom of God, a kingdom which was both present and imminent. Burnham's Jesus also challenged the law in a radical way. He was seen as a threat by the leading Jews and was crucified after his action in the temple. What Jesus thought about his own role or his impending death for Burnham is impossible to know. And although none of these ideas are really new, Borenkamp's work became the standard work for several decades to come. So this focus on the saying characterizes the scholars of the new quest. They want to get back to the very words of Jesus. In order to do this, scholars developed a number of criteria for determining which sayings were authentic. So the most important criterion was a criterion of dissimilarity. Now Boltman used this in the period of no quest. The criteria on a dissimilarity is basically saying that the material that has no parallel in Jesus' Jewish background, nor matches the theological emphasis of the emerging church, is most likely the most authentic. So a couple of sayings that you could say that fall under this criterion on dissimilarity are in Luke 9.60 when Jesus commands, let the dead bury the dead, or the need to receive the kingdom of God as a child in Mark 10.15. The criterion of dissimilarity relies upon two assumptions though. First, that Jesus was alien in the Jewish background and heritage at the time. That he was coming up with ideas that were completely new and were unrelated to the world around him. And second, that the creativity of the early church meant that we cannot simply assume a high degree of continuity between Jesus and the Gospels. While both of these would be challenged today, both were central assumptions of the critical scholarship at the time. There are two more criterion that go alongside the criterion of dissimilarity. These are the criterion of coherence and the criterion of multiple attestation. The criterion of coherence suggests that material from the earliest strata of the tradition may be accepted as authentic if it can be shown to cohere with material already established as authentic by the criterion of dissimilarity. So what this means is if we've already cleared a saying by the criterion of dissimilarity, then if we find that saying in another version or in another form somewhere else within the Gospels, it's likely to be true because it's already been passed by the criterion of dissimilarity. Then we also have the criterion of multiple attestation, which judges material to be authentic if it can be found in various independent sources and in a variety of forms. So if something continues to come up again and again and again, particularly motives rather than specific sayings, it's likely to have gone back to the historical Jesus. So for example, Jesus' concern for tax collectors and sinners is found throughout the gospel tradition, occurring in multiple forms. The kingdom of God would also be deemed to be authentic due to this criterion, as it can arguably be found in both Mark and Q. And if you remember, Q comes from the synoptic problem solution of the two document hypothesis which states that Luke and Matthew used two documents Mark and Q to write their own gospels. Joachim Jeremias utilized another criterion known as criterion of Aramaic linguistic phenomena. 
And basically what this says is when you find an Aramaic word within the Greek text of the Gospels, this must be authentic because it's unlikely that the Gospel writers would add in Aramaic words. Today, the criteria of authenticity has been widely criticized, particularly the criteria of dissimilarity. It produces a Jesus that is alien to the world that he was in, that he had no association with the Jewish background or other contemporary prophets in first century Judea, which is highly unlikely to be true. The other problem with this is that the criterion of coherence then further distorts this image of the historical Jesus by just building on top of a faulty foundation. The criterion of multiple attestation is also problematic as it assumes that because one saying is authentic, then all sayings like that are authentic. And the criterion of Aramaic linguistic phenomena is difficult to prove authenticity as well due to the fact that it only requires the same to have been created in an Aramaic speaking setting which is most of the Eastern Roman Empire. New Quest scholars were aware of these problems, however, they still deemed that it was the only way in which to proceed. And then we begin with the Third Quest. So this starts in the mid-1980s until the present day. The most important reason for the Third Quest were the advances in the study of Second Temple Judaism, the period in which Jesus lived. New documents came to the forefront, particularly those of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and well-known texts were subjected to increasingly sophisticated study. So studies started to particularly focus on the works of Josephus, rabbinic writings, apocryphal and pseudepigraphal literature. Archaeological research into the places encountered within the Gospels has also shed light on a world more diverse than had been previously believed. E.P. Senator's work on Paul challenged dominant understandings of Judaism as a legalistic faith characterized only by works of righteousness. Instead, Sanders proposed a Judaism that stressed the importance of God's grace before that of works. This advanced research into Second Temple Judaism instigated a new reprisal of the work on the most famous Jew of those times. So it's difficult to stay when the start of the Third Quest happened. Most people would point to either Geza Vermesh's work in the 1970s or E.P. Sanders' work in the 1980s, particularly his foundational work, Jesus and Judaism, published in 1985. Whatever the start of the third quest, it has three elements which define it. So the first element is that the work moved away from the German theological faculties. You'll see when we look at the scholars that the majority of them are in an Anglophone setting in the US or, or British Isles. The work has also moved into different faith backgrounds. Although Protestant scholars are still the vast majority of the scholarship happening at the moment, there are large numbers of Catholics, Jews and secularists involved in the third quest. This has multiple implications for the study, creating new questions and a variety of different outcomes. Also challenges previously held presuppositions. All modern Jesus scholars share a commitment to historical reconstruction and the view that Jesus is to be studied like any other great figure from the past. The second element is probably the most important, and it's the fact that central to Jesus' identity is his Jewishness. Previous quests sought a Jesus that was different from his Jewish surroundings and actively looked for those differences. The third quest, on the other hand, places Jesus as part of that first century Jewish world and structures, sharing his contemporaries' hopes and aspirations. So the questions have now changed from, is Jesus a Jew, to what kind of Jew was he? Was he an Essene? Was he a Pharisee, a nationalist, a prophet? And this question came out of the diverse collection of contemporary beliefs purported by the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Old Testament Apocrypha, and the Pseudepigrapha. So all these ideas about what Judaism is, how it should be lived, what's the essential aim and point of it were vast in Second Temple Judaism. Scholars now try to reconstruct first century Judea and are interested not only in people's religious outlook, 
but also the social, cultural, economic, and political strands of life. So we're just going to quickly do a segue from the three main elements of the third quest, and we'll get a look at the sources, particularly the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls could have a podcast all to themselves. There's numerous lectures on them online. You can find information in different books. I highly recommend going and looking in there. They are arguably the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. They are ancient Jewish religious manuscripts that were found in the Qumran caves in the Judean desert, about a mile inland from the northwest shore of the Dead Sea, hence the designation the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were originally discovered in 1946 by Bedouin of the Tamara tribe. He was out searching for an animal and he stumbled upon the first cave in which the scrolls were in. He took these scrolls back and the Bedouins kept them in the camp for the next four months until they later showed them to an antique dealer and the scrolls discovery became public. This launched a massive search for more scrolls and numerous caves were searched and now there are more than 981 texts of the Dead Sea Scrolls. 40% of the copies are texts of the Hebrew scriptures, 30% are texts from the second temple period which ultimately are not canonized in the Hebrew Bible. So books such as the Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Book of Tobit, the Wisdom of Sirach, and the Psalms from 152 to 155 are all part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Although we did have them before, these are the earliest occurrences of some of these works. And finally, roughly 30% are sectarian manuscripts of previously unknown documents that illuminate the rules and beliefs of a particular group or groups within Greater Judaism. This includes the Community Rule, the War Scroll, the Pesha and Habakkuk, and the rule of the blessing. The prevailing theory is that this particular group is the Essenes. This theory argues that the Essenes produced the scrolls and ultimately hid them in nearby caves during the Jewish revolt. Sometime between 66 and 68 CE, the community was destroyed and the scrolls were never recovered. Scholars provide evidence that could be used to support this hypothesis, particularly in the writings of Josephus. So when we look at the community rule scroll, we see very similar initiation ceremonies to those described by Josephus pertaining to the Essene community. Josephus also mentions how the sharing of property among the Essenes worked, and this is very similar to what we find in the community rules manuscript. Pliny the Elder describes a group of Essenes living in a desert community on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea near the ruined town of Ingedi, very close to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So this is the prevailing theory, but there are others that you can look up and see what you think. The Dead Sea Scrolls are imperative to the start of the new quest as it demonstrates the diversity found in religious practices during the Second Temple period. Also imperative is the scholarship that went into the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha during the same time. And this helps to elaborate on the diversity of religious practices within Judaism of the Second Temple period. The Apocrypha describes a collection of ancient books thought to have been written sometime between 200 BC 100 AD. Depending on the denomination determines whether these books are seen as canonical, part of the Bible. Protestants don't have them as part of their Old Testament because they follow the Masoretic text of the Hebrew Bible, which only has 39 books. So the Protestant Old Testament only has 39 Old Testament books. However, some Protestant denominations do see them as helpful texts and include them within their liturgies. The Catholic Church includes seven books which aren't in the Protestant Bible that are known as the Apocrypha and so they would be Tobit, Judith, Baruch, Sirach, 1 Maccabees, 2 Maccabees and the Wisdom of Solomon. The Orthodox Church includes alongside these books the Prayer of Manasseh, 1 Esdras, 2 Esdras, 3 Maccabees, 4 Maccabees, Psalm 151 and the Odes. The Pseudepigrapha is a much broader collection of extra biblical literature. Pseudepigrapha refers to texts that have been given false names or false authorship. 
although the collection has now grown to include several anonymous texts as well. The scope of the text usually ranges from pseudonymous Jewish extra-biblical writing from about 200 BCE to 200 CE. Both the apocryphal and pseudepigraphal texts help to understand the historical, social, and religious context of Jesus' life. And some of these texts are actually quoted in the Bible. So you can see the book of Enoch being quoted in the book of Jude in the New Testament. Now back to the three main elements of the third quest. The final defining element of the third quest is that many modern Jesus researchers have allowed the search for the Ipsuma Verba to fall to the wayside and prefer to construct a larger picture of the world in which Jesus lived and died. There are, however, still scholars who look at the Ipsuma Verba rather than looking at a larger picture of the world in which Jesus lived and died. So the questions are now not so much about what he genuinely said, but where do we place him in Second Temple Judaism? Did, how did he relate to his contemporaries? Why did he die? And how can we explain the movement which followed him? The focus is on the larger themes of the historical Jesus and the world in which he lived, rather than the minutiae of the tradition. Besides these three elements, the third quest is as diverse in its outcomes as it is in its scholars. Some scholars focus on the healing activity and characterize him as a magician if you look at the work of Morton Smith. Others, like Geza Vermesh, see his healing activity as more akin to one charismatic healer and exorcist in the vein of other Jewish figures at the time. Other scholars focus on the centrality of Jesus' apocalyptic eschatology. E.P. Sanders, J.P. Meyer, and Dale Allison all focus on what Jesus is preaching about the end times. Other scholars centralize his teaching. So see him as a sage or a rabbi, which is the work of David Flusser. Others see him as a Pharisee, if you look at Chaim Maccoby. And others, again, see him as a wisdom teacher preaching a radical egalitarianism. So the work of Elizabeth Schusler Ferenza. Marcus Borg himself sees him as a subversive sage. And Richard Horsley sees him as a social revolutionary. So we'll get a look at these scholars in more depth. Geza Vermesh, who was a Catholic in Hungary and during the Second World War. He discovered his family of Jewish origin and converted later in life. He was professor of Jewish studies at Oxford University for many years. And his work, Jesus the Jew, published in 1973, demonstrated Vermesh's treatment of Jesus as any other historical subject and his desire to place him within his first century context. His most important contribution was his claim that Jesus should be understood alongside other contemporary holy men. So Jesus, for Geza Vermesh, was a pious, law-observant Jew and one of the many contemporary holy men of the time. Vermesh's treatment of Jesus in first century Jewish context shaped the way for scholarship in the third quest. Then we look at E.P. Sanders. He was a native of Texas and taught at McMaster, Oxford, and Duke. He's similar in his perspective to that of Albert Schweitzer. His major works are Jesus and Judaism, published in 1985, and The Historical Figure of Jesus, which was published in 1993. And they present Jesus as a Jewish apocalyptic prophet, announcing the establishment of a new temple and the restoration of the 12 tribes of Israel. Key to Sanders' work is his desire to place Jesus within his first century context. And this work that he's done on Second Temple Judaism has allowed him to become one of the most revered scholars of the topic. Sanders starts both of his books with lists of facts that we can practically say are indisputable. These enable him to construct a framework that makes sense of as much of the data as possible. Having completed setting the scene, he then turns to the words of Jesus. So you can see this is a trend that goes through the majority of Third Quest scholars, where you set the scene, you come up with a larger picture of things, and then you focus on Jesus' sayings. Central to Sanders' framework is Jesus' outburst within the temple. 
And to understand the historical Jesus, you first need to really understand this. Jesus for Sanders was God's messenger, predicting the destruction of the temple and replacing it with an eschatological one, which would be brought by the Son of Man, whom Jesus thought was someone other than himself. And in the end, Jesus was greatly mistaken. Sanders' most controversial point is probably that Jesus did not require repentance from his followers. For Sanders, Jesus broke away from John the Baptist and his proclamation of repentance and instead showed a God that loved humanity and, and gave grace to his followers. We then look at Richard Horsley. In the late 1970s, Horsley published a paper arguing that Jesus was best understood as a social revolutionary. He created a bleak picture of Galilee, drawing heavily on the social sciences. Galilee was a society ravaged by class struggle, economic inequalities, and a downward spiral of violence, repression, and disenfranchisement. Jesus was one in a line of contemporary prophets who preached a kingdom which was not remote and ethereal, but one that was a concrete transformation of everyday life. Jesus was one in a line of contemporary prophets who preached a kingdom which was not remote and ethereal, but one that was a concrete transformation of everyday life. Horses Jesus sets himself against the rich and powerful, the ruling elite, and that includes the temple. He sided with the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized and the downtrodden. Horsley doesn't see Jesus' message as a political one, as it was addressed to the people of the Galilean villages, not the elite. Jesus rejected Rome and all it stood for. In commanding his followers to turn the other cheek or to love their neighbours, he was speaking to the relationships of the Galilean villages and not the wider political systems. By positioning Jesus like this, Horsley has to deny the fact that Jesus wanted to associate with tax collectors and later puts this to early church tradition. Horsley has a number of critics, both on the way he represents Jesus and the first century Galilee which he depicts. However, his work is important for bringing the societal conditions in Galilee to the forefront and the stress on the social dimensions and political implications of Jesus' message. There is a collection of scholars who worked on the historical Jesus, and that was found in 1985 by Robert Funk. This is a collection of US academics, and it's known as the Jesus Seminar. Funk and John Dominic Crossan co-chaired the seminar until Funk's death in 2005. The seminar's methodology is one very similar to that of the New Quest, focusing on the saints of Jesus, then debating the historicity of a vast number of individual units of tradition before turning to evaluate his actions. In order to determine which traditions are most historically authentic, the seminar had its scholars vote with coloured beads, which I absolutely love the fact that we have academics who spent thousands and thousands of pounds getting their PhDs and they're playing with beads. So for these academics, if a saying went back to the tradition of Jesus, it was an authentic saying, you would put a red bead next to him. If you think it was probable or highly probable, then you would put a pink bead next to the saying. If the saying may have some authentic material, you would then vote using a gray bead. And if the tradition did not go back to Jesus, you would then vote using a black bead. The findings have been characterized both by a high degree of skepticism regarding the canonical gospels and an openness to the authenticity of other non-canonical sources, such as the Gospel of Thomas. Some of the seminar's findings were published in the 1993 book, The Five Gospels, a colloquial translation of the canonical Gospels and the Gospel of Thomas, in which the sayings are color-coded to reflect the seminar's estimation of their historicity. So, in voting, they saw that 18% of the sayings tradition was thought to go back to Jesus, of which John's Gospel could lay claim to only one red-slash-pink saying, Mark supposedly has 19, and the Gospel of Thomas could boast 43 sayings that went back to the original tradition of Jesus. The Jesus Seminar revealed a Jesus who was an illiterate peasant, who began as a follower of John the Baptist, but rejected both his ascetic lifestyle and apocalyptic preaching of imminent judgment. 
Instead, he became an itinerant sage, using pithy sayings to announce the kingdom of God had already arrived, and shamelessly celebrating his presence by eating and drinking with outcasts. This Jesus did not care for the religious underpinnings of the Jewish faith, scripture, law, or any hope of restoration. And he never claimed to be anything such as a messiah and was arrested and executed after his outburst at the temple. Many critics point to this Jesus as one being similar to that of the liberal lives. They've created a Jesus of the 21st century and Helen Bond in her book, The Historical Jesus, A Guide for the Perplexed, says that they've made a 20th century Californian Jesus. Helen Bond says they've created a 20th century Californian type Jesus. And what's highlighted by the Jesus Seminar is more of a methodology followed by that of the Old and New Quest rather than those of their colleagues in the Third Quest. John Dominic Crossan's own reconstruction of Jesus is more nuanced than the Jewish Seminar although he largely agrees with what the outcome was. Two main features that stand out in Crossan's work is his connection with Jesus and the philosophical teachings of the cynics, and second is his belief that the passion narratives are nearly entirely fictionalized by the evangelists, with the only historical event being his crucifixion, which followed swiftly on from the incident in the temple. So for Crossan, the Jewish leadership had no role in Jesus' crucifixion. This was later produced by the church due to the antagonism between the church and the synagogue, and Jesus' execution for John Dominic Crossan was purely a Roman affair. A fuller picture of Crossan's work can be found in a number of his books, chiefly The Historical Jesus, The Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant, published in 1991, and a shorter version in Jesus, A Revolutionary Biography, published in 1994. J.P. Meyer is of a similar vein to John Dominic Crossan. He is a professor of New Testament at the University of Notre Dame and a Catholic priest. His five-volume work, Jesus, a Marginal Jew, is the lengthiest modern treatment of the historical Jesus. Meyer attempts to create a consensus view of Jesus by creating what he's termed an unpapal conclave. So in this unpapal conclave that Meyer creates is an imaginary scholar who's Catholic, a scholar who's Protestant, a scholar who's Jewish, and a scholar who's agnostic. In later recreations of the unpapal conclave, he also adds in a Muslim. He has provided arguably the most thorough analysis of the chronology of Jesus's life, and Meyer bases his reconstruction largely on the canonical text, being skeptical of the value of most non-canonical texts. Meyer's Jesus is much in common with that of Sanders, a Galilean prophet who moved away from the teaching of John the Baptist's fiery judgment and offered God's mercy and forgiveness through his healings and open table fellowship with sinners, yet still kept that there would be a day of judgment. He believed that Israel would be restored and acted more like an apocalyptic prophet rather than a social revolutionary. Myers' Jesus, in contrast to Sanders, was able to rescind and change parts of the law based on his own authority, causing problems with the religious leaders of his day. And finally, his stage entry and temple demonstration led to his death. Critics challenge Myers' methodology in the same way that they challenged the Jesus seminar. He is working from the ground up rather than beginning with a broader work hypothesis. Authentic material is discerned through criteria, many of which come from the New Quest. He also creates his own criterion of embarrassment, which is material that Christians would rather not be in the Gospel, such as the Baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Most people see Meyer's work as careful and detailed scholarship. N.T. Wright was Bishop of Durham from 2003 to 2010 when he began teaching at the University of St. Andrews until his appointment as Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall at the University of Oxford in 2019. He's a prolific writer with works aimed at both the wider public and academics. His fullest portrait of Jesus can be found in Jesus and the Victory of God, published in 1996, and is the second in a five-volume series on Christian origins. Wright sees Jesus as a Jewish prophet announcing the inauguration of the kingdom of God. He saw himself as a messiah, albeit in a rather new way compared to the rest of Second Temple Judaism, who replaced adherence to the temple and the Torah with allegiance to himself 
and had stood himself as the embodiment of Israel's God. Jesus got himself into trouble with the Pharisees for this message, though it was the Jerusalem authorities who eventually persuaded Pilate to send him to the cross. Jesus died as Israel's representative by taking God's wrath on himself. Wright looks at the bigger narrative rather than studying the individual sayings of Jesus, following the trajectory of many third quest historians. This grand narrative offers a novel understanding to Jesus' eschatology. What Jesus predicted was the disaster of 70 CE, in which the Romans destroyed the Jerusalem temple, rather than the cataclysmic cosmic upheaval that we see in ideas like the rapture or Armageddon. N.T. Wright also believes that the Son of Man's sayings are not in regard to some second coming and unspecified future date, but in regards to Jesus' ascent to heaven. This therefore means that Jesus was in fact correct in everything that he foretold that he would do. Wright is also more concerned with the resurrection than most historical Jesus scholars and has recently devoted an 800-page book to arguing that Jesus was raised bodily from the grave. In certain aspects, Wright's work shows an advance in the methodology of historical Jesus research. His development of the criteria doubled his similarity and similarity, by which he means that the elements within his reconstruction need to be credible within the first century Judaism and also to have a connection, albeit in an undeveloped form, with later developments of the early church. In doing so, he stops problematic Jesus in the quest, who was disembodied and decontextualized. Many criticize Wright for doing more theology than history, and that his understanding of the Son of Man and exile of Palestine that he paints is seen as problematic. There's some honorable mentions, and in particular, I'd like to point out Elizabeth Schusler-Ferenza. The reason I haven't put her work into this podcast is I don't believe I could do it justice. I highly recommend going and looking her up. There's a really interesting article written in August 2020 about her work and the historical Jesus and how she may be developing a fourth quest. These scholars may be more diverse in the third quest, but this diversity is only superficial, with the majority perspective coming from white Western men. This is a challenge for historical Jesus research, as it limits the understandings of the historical Jesus that we can make from a wide-ranging level of scholarship. Anyway, who do you agree with? And if you have any questions about the subjects we've covered, or if you feel I missed anything out, or something was incorrect, let me know on social media at LMTPod. Likewise, if you enjoyed the podcast, get in touch. I would love to hear from you. Next, we're going to be starting our introduction to Christian theology, particularly looking at the theology of the patristic period. I want to say thanks to Roy McGrath for creating our intro music. You can check out our stuff on Spotify and YouTube. I'll leave a link in the show notes as well. That's all from me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And yeah, let me know what you think. See you later.